Hey, welcome to episode 79 of the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. Now, before we chat to Jason Brewer, I just want to let you know that you can subscribe to the Gig Life Podcast. If you go to www.thegiglifepodcast.com, scroll to the bottom of that first page and click on the red button, pick your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. Um, You can even set it for automatic downloads, and that means all the episodes will get delivered directly to your app. Um, Also, if you dig the Google Life podcast, you can share it, tell your friends about it, post it up on your socials. Um, The Gig Life podcast is free. You don't have to pay anything ever. But if you do find the value in the Gig Life podcast, you can donate. So you go to thegiglifepodcast.com, click on that donate button, give as little or as much as you like. Just know that any donation will go back into creating the great content for this podcast. Okay, episode 79, Jason Brewer, here we go. guest today is Sydney saxophonist Jason Brewer. Born and raised in Adelaide, Jason didn't start playing music till very late in his teens. He studied music at the Adelaide University at the same year as his brother and sister. That's a unique story in itself. He played around Adelaide with a small quintet, Small Hours, before joining the band Fat Time, which quickly outgrew Adelaide. So he and the band moved to Sydney. From there, Fat Time went on to win the Star Search competition and that led to national tours with Joe Cocker, Santana, Joan Arma Trading, Casey and the Sunshine Band, as well as a bunch of TV show appearances. Jason moved to London in the late 80s to give the scene a crack. Uh, that move eventually led him to play with Jules Holland, Sting, Eric Clapton, Mick Hucknall, and many more. He also played on the soundtrack to one of the greatest rom-coms of all time, Three Weddings and a Funeral. Health issues started to take their toll on Jason in the early 2000s, and so he moved back to Sydney. These days, Jason leads his powerful sextet, Hammerhead, amongst other projects. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Mr. Jason Brewer. Cheers. I think we're rolling. Jason Brewer, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Thank you for having me. No worries, man. Um, the elephant in the room, I guess, COVID-19, um, being professional musician yourself, um, the impacts like many is pretty massive. So what what was kind of taken away from you basically overnight? Um, well, I mean, obviously my gig life, you know, no, no pun intended, (laughs) but, um, and I think that's, you know, like we all sort of, we're strange beings, you know, musicians are strange and we have a kind of, it's like we have a secret social life as well, which is, which is our sort of professional gigging life, which often is quite separate to, you know, a family social situation. Sometimes they combine, but 
you know, so you not only miss out on the on the gigging and the the enjoyment of playing music, but also the camaraderie and that sort of social element. And you know, the, the obviously the the finances are quite big as well. Um, <clears throat> so, and and it's I think that the hardest thing for me is not really knowing, and and not just for me, everybody's like, when is it going to end? You know, yeah. we we heard three months, then we heard six months, and then I heard. Um, Gladys Berejiklian saying this morning that, you know, the social distancing measures will be in place until uh, such time as there's a vaccine, vaccine that's you right. know, yep. and that's like, man, I mean, that's a year away. So the idea of not being able to gig, I mean, I've got, you know, tours coming up in September with my own band and stuff that I've worked really hard on and, and look, I'm, I'm no different to anybody else and lots of great gigs coming up. Um, over that period, not to mention the ones that I've just sort of lost. So it's it's weird. But, look, I think, you know, things could be worse. Like I'm well, I'm fit, I'm healthy, yeah, I've got good. a beautiful family, I've yep. got, a, I've got um, time now to, to do stuff and be able to look back on this and go, okay, well, during this period of adversity, I did this and I wrote these tunes and I – you know, spent lots of time with my family, yep. which I, you know, as, as a gigging musician um, and with older kids, you know, often days can go by and I don't even see my kids. How, how old are your kids, Dave? Uh, 23 and 18. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and how, how are they, how are they um, coping with the, with the um, social distancing? Because I mean, especially, especially 18. 18 to 26, 27, I mean, that's a, that's a high social time, man. Um, that must be rough. That must be tough. Yeah. Mm. No, a hundred percent. No, it, that, that, that is very difficult. Look, we're, they're both doing really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, my son's had his girlfriend here pretty much since they, you know, like they announced the full lockdown, she basically moved in. <clears throat> and then the next day they said, oh, it's okay if you visit your partner. So <laughs> yeah, right. she'd like, Packed, packed all her things and yep. moved in, and then cool. it was like, oh, well. so anyway, she's she's gone back home today for a couple of days, but she'll be back. And uh, it's difficult. I think it's harder for my daughter because she was. Um, this is her gap year from finishing HSC, oh. and all of her her social friends were planning to do a big European trip um, in August. Fortunately, they hadn't paid for it or booked it. Right. Um, but my son actually had, he's about to finish university and him and his girlfriend had a, a six week European trip all paid for, um, and, and, you know, ready to go at the end of June. So that's all been canceled. So yeah, I think it is a bit, it is a bit harder for them because they're in that stage of life where they're wanting to get out and, and do stuff, Mm. you know? Uh, so yeah, uh, it, it impacts everybody in a slightly different way, I think. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and, and just like I was saying to you, um, with my work, um, we're deemed essential service for the because we do work for um, the water companies and some other places. And um, but yeah, the impact the impact on us uh, has been the homeschooling. That's the most difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, just the sheer amount of information. They send us first thing in the morning. Um, I mean, they're trying really hard. The teachers are doing a, a, a good job under the circumstances. 
yeah, when you're not sitting, when you're not sitting down, the kids aren't sitting down in the classroom and actually hearing that teacher give the lesson and then having to sit down and, and, and do the work that goes with the lesson, it's basically, here, read that and th- this is your lesson. You have to answer all these things and it's tough. Man. That's tough. <laughs> so is your, is, your, um, is your partner or wife able to be at home? Or yeah, she's, um, she works three days a week. Um, but she's working from home. Um, yes, yeah, three of those days, and the first two days of the week she's home to just do that. And um, but yeah, she's yeah struggling to get it all to get all her work done because obviously ha- having to get called back to help the kids, or there'll be a, or there'll be a technical problem, and there were some problems yesterday with the with the system. She couldn't upload stuff. Um, yeah, it's it's hard, man. Yeah, well, look, good luck with everything, mate. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Um, all right, Jace, let's um, let's talk about your music, your career, um, your life. So let's start at the beginning. Okay. Um, you're from Radelaide. From Radelaide, yep. indeed. Yep. Awesome. <clears throat> um, so were you were you born there? Yep. Yep. Cool. And was yep. there music in the family? Your mum and dad musicians. Um, not, no, not really. They were both sort of, they both enjoyed music. My mother was quite musical. She played a bit of piano and sang in always, you know, sang in choirs, um, and loved listening to music. So did my father, but they weren't musicians per se. Um, so whilst there was music around, it wasn't, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't like a, a kind of early starter, you know, like I, I was quite old when I started up, started playing music. Right. I was, um, I don't know how much research you've done on my kind of, you know, the early years as it were. Well, you, you, well, I know you, you started playing saxophone at, at 16. Is, at, at how old? At, at age 16, 16, is that right? I, I, no, I was, no, no, I was much older than that. I was Oh, really? 19. Okay. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So really I had no, you know, I mean, I did record it for a year or something when I was eight and right. I, I, I convinced my parents to buy me a drum kit when I was 14 just to let off a bit of, you know, teenage angst. Yep. Um, but I think I had, you know, one lesson or something. Um, I wasn't really serious. I wasn't a serious young kind of player at all. Um, so... It wasn't until I spent a year in London when I was um, 16 and turning 17 um, that I kind of, I mean, looking back on this, I, I can I can sort of think, well, that's where it started because I, you know, left school, I lived in London, I was 16, 17, I was able to go and see all the bands that, you know, I loved that would never come to Australia. So I just immersed myself in in the kind of London music scene, mm. um, which compared to Adelaide, man, was like, it was insane. Mm. It, it was literally insane. It's a much overused word, but, like, it was insane, like, going from this kind of, you know, Adelaide's a sleepy town. It still is. Right. You know, and you, you go to London in the 70s, um, was absolutely wild and I didn't, like I wasn't playing any music but I was working and my, my dad was over there studying, took the whole family apart from my older brother, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 
And, you know, so I got back um, at the end of 1977 uh, to discover that some of my mates um, were kind of a couple of people that I wasn't even sure, I didn't even really know played instruments were kind of, you know, jamming with guys and uh, making music. And I used to sort of go along to rehearsals and, you know, like think, well, this is pretty cool. But I still didn't, like, I didn't suddenly think, wow, I've got to, I want to be a sax player, you know, like it was sort of took a bit longer than that. Um, and then it was, it was just like a bolt of lightning, man. Like I was, I felt a bit lost. I went up and lived in New South Wales, um, up in Byron Bay and drifted around, you know, taking far too many drugs and sleeping on people's sofas and just bumming around the place. Um, had a great time, but I sort of didn't have any real direction. I had, I hadn't finished school. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and, and I got back from that little period probably towards my 19th birthday and just suddenly thought I want to play the saxophone. Where did the, <laughs> so where did the saxophone come from? What? Well, look, okay. What, what, so what were you, yeah, so what were you listening to? Yeah. Bit. Yep. Yeah. So, so I remember always, like I was always, a, I was a big Pink Floyd fan. Right. <clears throat> And there's quite a lot of sax on uh, Pink Floyd. So I remember thinking one of the things I really liked about them is that they had this different texture in their sound because sort of out of nowhere there would be this saxophone and I used to think, wow, that's really cool, mm. you know, because most of the stuff I listened to in those days was, you know, prog rock or, you know, Led Zeppelin or, you know, Eric Clapton or B.B. King or yep. anyway. Yep. Um so then whilst I was in London, I met a guy that was a couple of years older than me and um, he took me to Ronnie Scott's and we went and saw um, <clears throat> the Bobby Hutchison Quintet, who's a famous uh, jazz vibraphone player. <clears throat> and he introduced me to John Coltrane and Weather Report. Um, and I didn't really know what it was that I was listening to. But I know now when I look back at that, I thought, right, that is where I got this kind of, you know, germ of an idea that maybe I could play the saxophone. But mm -hmm. it was much later that that even dawned on me, right. you know. So compared to most people's sort of musical upbringings, um, I would say that mine is definitely atypical. Mm. Um, so by, by the time I... I did actually take up the saxophone. Um, that's all I wanted to do. Like it was from sort of from nothing to, right, this is now what I want to do, you know. Like I've never, ever been so focused in my life, you awesome. know. When I, when I went, right, that's what I want to do and I realised that um, if I practised and became, you know, as good a player as possible, I might have a chance of auditioning as a mature age student at the um, University of Adelaide um, Bachelor of Music mm -hmm. course. So I kind of worked out that um, <clears throat> I worked out that if I practiced, you know, a lot, uh, I might be able to achieve that goal. So I, I basically, I had lots of sort of part-time jobs and other jobs, but I still managed to practice, you know, six to eight hours a day uh, for three years. Did, did you have, I auditioned? Did you? Uh, at, sorry, 
did you have teachers or were you self uh pretty pretty much self-taught right awesome so I got into some shocking habits, um, which took a long time. <laughs> as, as, as you do when you self-teach. You think, well, that's think right. You know everything. And um, so I just sort of, you know, I was, I was possess- you know, like I joined this band, all these guys that I've mentioned before that were jamming sort of asked me to join their band when I'd only been playing for about six months. I mean, it was horrible. I listened back to those recordings and I go, God, that was just terrible. But, <laughs> I, you know, there was a lot of passion there and um, – Anyway, uh, cut a long story short, I got uh, I got into the course, mm. and you know, sort of everything kind of took off from there. Really, did you? You know, did you find that because you hadn't had those lessons and you were um, that you were self taught? Was there struggles with the lessons? Um, did you have what I mean? Was were there people in your in your class or on your course that had already been? Um, training and could already read and did yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So like, so the typical, so my sister, right, who I'm, you know, absolutely in awe of, she was the only one in our family that started music at what I consider a kind of normal age, which was seven, right? Like I teach, I start off a lot of kids at seven mm. on flute or clarinet saxophone for the ones that are a little bit bigger but even even saxophone is too big an instrument for some seven-year-olds but right. a lot of my stu- a lot of my students I start off around seven or eight and they kind of learn in a way that they're not even thinking about what they're doing they just learn they play in the band program at school and you know they kind of go through life playing music yep. and some of them some of them get better than others. Mm-hmm. Some of them stick at it. Mm-hmm. In my sister's, um, in, in in the case of my sister, which is an interesting kind of scenario. So she started violin at seven, and she did it all through school. She had, you know, one of the best teachers in Adelaide, um, and she had a whole social group of all of her friends that were aspiring violinist she still didn't you know I I doubt she thought she would be a professional but um she went through all of the school bands she got into various orchestras she got asked to join the um Adelaide um youth orchestra then she got asked to join the Australian youth orchestra and then she got asked to join the world youth orchestra (laughs) would you believe and then when she got to the age of 17, she'd had all of that experience. She popped out the other side like a complete monster, you know, like right. unbelievable sight read, reader, great ears, yeah. you know, like beautiful sound. I mean, she still had work to do on her playing, but she'd had all of that experience. She decided in 1982, having just finished her um, um, HSC, to go to the Adelaide University and do a Bachelor of Music. Now, it just happened <laughs> that that was the same year that I enrolled, even though I started my musical journey only three years prior to that. Right. So we both enrolled, as well as my older brother. Now, that's quite a, I think this is quite a unique story. He <laughs> was a car mechanic that was also passionate about playing jazz piano. So even though he was doing his apprenticeship, he was, you know, playing piano and then he got quite obsessed 
with piano, as did I on the saxophone. And he also auditioned um, in the same year that I did. So the three of us ended up going to Adelaide University and studying music together. Wow. That is yeah. unique. Never heard of that before. That's awesome. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's, that, that must have been pretty comforting too. Because, you, you know. Yeah, look, it was. But what I realised, I mean, going back to what you said before, like I was up against a lot of kids that were like my sister. Right. That had right. just gone through school playing instruments in the band programs. Yep. They could sight read, you know, like really well, much better than me. I could read a bit. Like I, I you know, considering I was a, pretty much a self-taught musician, I had a, a few lessons here and there. Um, and, and, and there was this huge pressure. So being fairly competitive, I thought, well, okay, you know, I'm going to practice more than you and try and overcome my deficiencies right. in that way. Gotcha. So I was, I was incredibly motivated, you know, and, and it was part of my sort of competitive spirit that, that sort of drove me on. But it was, you know, the main part of it was just this overwhelming desire to be uh, as better, the best player I could possibly be, you know. Mm. And, you know, e- even when I started at that course, I still probably didn't think that I was going to have a 40-year career, you know, right. as I sit and speak to you now. Okay. <clears throat> you know, that was, uh, that was well, it wasn't 40 years ago that I started university, but I was already doing gigs well before I started. Right. Right, you know. So, um, you men- anyway, look, it's you know, everyone's got a story. Yeah, you mentioned by by being self taught, um, you develop bad habits, right? Yeah. Can you remember once you started uni, and once you started with those teachers, what the most difficult bad habit that that you had to break, and that was kind of holding you back from from, from yeah. advancing. Yeah, look, I mean, obviously that, that, that you know, having, um, having a teacher that takes you under his or her wing and nurtures you from a young age, you can't replace that, you know, like that mm. is the best gift yep. you could ever have, mm-hmm. you know, and, and um, so I learned a lot of bad habits. The, the worst one was that I p- played the saxophone like an oboe I had what was called a double embouchure because you can't see by watching a saxophone uh, player play their instrument that they've actually got their teeth on the top of the mouthpiece. Okay. Right. Okay. So that so that so the traditional um, embouchure for a saxophone player, uh, and it's similar to the clarinet, is you put your teeth down on the top of the mouthpiece, and the reed where the reed vibrates that sits on your bottom lip. That cushions the bottom teeth, right? Now, I didn't know that. So I picked up the saxophone and because I practiced so much, I could produce a pretty good sound and I did a ridiculous amount of work on my sound because I knew, you know, I was was obsessed basically. Mm -hmm. So whenever I did have teachers, they just kind of went, oh, man, you sound really good. So they didn't question that I was doing something so fundamentally wrong. Right. And then I had this teacher called Barry Duggan, who's a really great alto player. And look, he wasn't a bad teacher. He smoked a lot of my weed and played. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was 
you know, so that so in those days, even being at the university, your teacher could actually come to your house. Like, like there's no way you can do that now. So he would come to my house and, you know, it was an hour's lesson and he'd be at my house for three hours because he'd get so stoned <laughs> and he'd just uh, play, play along to all of my records yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'll just sit there going, wow, I guess I better roll another joint. Then. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, uh, um, and, but listening to him play was inspiring mm. and he was the only one that noticed that I had this weird embouchure. So that was very difficult to undo. Right. And I still, as a result of that, I'm, I, I have quite an unorthodox um, embouchure, I think. But, look, you get, away, you get around it, and a lot of people, people do. You know, even Coltrane, when he had his um, issues with his teeth, he had to change his embouchure quite considerably. But, you know, um, there's a period in his career where you can really hear the difference in his sound because he's being challenged by the fact that he had to adjust to, you know, whatever they did in those days with your teeth, you know, mm. <clears throat> replacements or crowns or whatever. Um, so that I think, you know, obviously I missed out on all of that, um, that depth of musical study like I um, explained um, with, you know, with my sister's experience and, you know, that her experience was sort of much more typical, you know. Right. Um, mine was was sort of atypical, but you know, I just kind of pushed myself, and and uh, you know, I I ended up doing okay. So awesome. awesome. You know, yeah. Um, were you playing uh, in bands during that time? Yeah. So I had um, I formed my own uh, jazz quintet called small hours mm -hmm. um and we were um you know we did sort of i don't know probably a couple of gigs a week or something you know even back then before i started um university i was also in another band prior to that which was a all original kind of um art rock kind of jazz band a band called cottage that was uh um, extremely inspiring, and that that was sort of probably the band that that um, gave me the most hope that that I could do this, you know, because the players in that band were so much more advanced than me. Uh, but they liked something about what I did, and you know, we we basically rehearsed five nights a week with that band. So, you know, you start coming to terms with your instrument. Um, well, quick, more quickly than you otherwise would when you're playing that much, you know. Mm. So I was already in a couple of bands when I got to university and then uh, in 1982 I was asked to join this band called Fat Time um, that uh, eventually sort of outgrew the scene in Adelaide and I instigated bringing that band up to Sydney and that's how I got my start in Sydney. Right. Now I I did read that about how how Fat Time outgrew the Adelaide scene. Can you explain how that how that happens? I don't know anything about um, the Adelaide music scene then or, or now. And um, yeah, look, I guess when I when I say out, outgrow, I mean look, that maybe sounds a bit pretentious, but it, it just in that you know we were doing all of the kind of gigs 
that a band like that could do. We were packing places out like everybody did in those days because right. in the you know in the early eighties people went out. Right. <clears throat> Venues were packed everywhere. Same in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got to a sort of point where um, we'd sort of got to the ceiling, really. Okay. You know. All right. So, like historically, a lot of the biggest bands in Australia, some of whom came out of Adelaide, they eventually get to a point where they move. Okay. You know, like Little River Band and you know Cold Chisel and you know two bands um, that that come you know spring to mind. Um, most people that are sort of ambitious in the music world move out of Adelaide because it's a small city. <clears throat> so I guess that's what I mean by outgrew. The scene, yeah, it, d- it didn't sound pre- I, it didn't sound pretentious at all. No, definitely not. Oh, good, yeah, good, no, no, good. Not, not at all. I just, yeah, I, like I said, it's me not knowing um, about the scene down there, um, which I'm starting mm. to learn a little bit more about. Um, yeah, so that that's cool. You cleared that up for me. Appreciate that. Yeah, so I um I actually, I mean, I was hell bent on on moving to Sydney. Um, I came up to Sydney in 19. 19- 81, I think, and did this um, workshop by a guy called Jamie Abersold, who was an American educator. He came out and did these workshops with, like, the heaviest jazz players, all the A-listers, and it was like a week band camp at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. And me and my brother and a couple of my mates, we drove up from Sydney and we went enrolled and enrolled in that course. I think that was 1981. Mm. And that just completely blew my mind. Um, going to that course during the day, going out every night, seeing what Sydney had to offer. And at that point I knew that, you know, I just needed to sort of become a better player. And then the first opportunity that I got, I would be out of Adelaide and up to Sydney. So I didn't actually even finish my degree. Um, It got to the point with the band Fat Time that I thought, okay, I reckon we might be able to make a go of it in Sydney. So I actually drove up to Sydney, um, Gold Coast, Brisbane and um, the Sunshine Coast. I think I was away for maybe 10 days and uh, just door knocking, knocking on agents' doors and just sort of basically doing a recce, you know, to sort of suss out whether – that band would have a chance of getting work up here. And I, I got a really positive response. So I went back to Adelaide and I said to everybody, right, um, I reckon we'd really do well up there, so I want to take the band up to Sydney. And who's in? And most of the band went great. They put their hands up and a few didn't and we replaced them and pretty much that's it. I left my degree, did two years of my degree, and then I went, no. Nah, I want to go, so we left. It was probably the best thing I ever did. Right. So tell me a little bit about Sydney, and, and that, that was 1984 you moved up there? Yeah. You moved up here, sorry? <clears throat> how yeah. was how was the scene at that stage? What was going on? Unbelievable. Yep. It, it was it was just extraordinary. I mean, it, it happened so fast. Um, I'm told I had a good time in the 80s, but a lot of it I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that. Um, I've heard that once or twice. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but no. I'm telling you, man, I, I've got no. some. Unfortunately, I've got some serious black holes in my memory. Right. 
from back from back in those days. But look, I, I we we got up here in the I you know it was January nineteen eighty four, and very very shortly thereafter, I got um, a phone call from this agent, and I can't even remember if I'd knocked on his door when I did my recce, but. There was a guy called um, Eric Carlini, known as Chubby. He was actually originally Adelaide, and he had this um, agency called the Sphere Agency. Mm-hmm. And he still does. He still operates, and he, he's got most of the clubs on his books. And, you know, he, he rang me up and said, I can get you guys work. Um, I've heard about you. Um, you know, let me see what I can do. And we said, okay, and off we went. Before we know, before we knew it, we we're working four or five nights a week, and then in a very short period of time, we were working as much as we wanted to. Basically, you know, like it, it, there was just never any kind of, um, you know, there, there was just seemingly no shortage of gigs. Right, and uh, you guys ended up doing some national tours with Joe Cocker and uh, Santana. Joe Nama Trading, Casey and the Sunshine Band. Yep. Um, we um, So there was this talent show at the time in 1985 called Star Search, which mm-hmm. was kind of, I guess it was the equivalent of The Voice and The yep. Idol and, yep. you know, Australia's Got Talent. It was the first one of its type. And um, it was uh, – it had – the, the, the difference was that it wasn't about singers. It wasn't just about vocalists. Yep. It was about bands, which yep. was cool. Yep. And it was also they had other categories as well. Uh, but anyway, we entered the uh, – we got put up for it and we um, went through and we ended up winning it. Um, so that immediately kind of raised our profile um, because that was, you know, national TV, mm. and that's how we got the Santana and the Joe Cocker and the KC and the Shun- Sunshine Band. We'd supported Joan Alma Trading when we were in Adelaide, actually. Um, so, you know, the, the band had really high profile for an unsigned band. You know, we supported the a lot of the big bands of the day like Dragon and Party Boys and the Models and the Dynamic Hypnotics and um, there's probably numerous other bands that we used to support. Um, Matt Finish, um, you know, some, some, some bands that, you know, were, were on a much higher level than us, but we often got those support gigs. Awesome. Um, and then also as a result of that, me and the horn section um, often got, um, session work with some of those pop bands, um, uh, you know. Yeah, so it, it was exciting. It's a very exciting four years. Yeah. Um, what was it like touring with Joe Cocker? Look, we did. Uh, I can't even remember. I think it was. I know it was Sydney and Melbourne. I don't think we went to Adelaide. We might have gone to Brisbane. Um, look, it was very much them and us. You know, oh, right. the, the okay. tour manager made right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. The tour manager made it very, very um, clear right from the beginning, um, <clears throat> and we provided our own transport. I think we probably provided our own accommodation as well. Wow! And the only thing we got was a fee and the support slot, and that was it. That and that's it. pretty much how it was in those days. Right. Like you know. You didn't go on the road with those bands 
like perhaps you do now where, you know, you're, you're flying around in private jets and getting put up at the, you know, the Hilton and stuff like that. Mm. It's it very much the support band. I mean, there, there was a trend there for a while where support bands actually paid yeah, to yeah. get on tours, yep. you know. Yep, I've heard that. Um, that, that was something I learned uh, when I moved to London that, you know, the, the you know ba- record companies that had bands that they were trying to break there was this massive competition for them to go on the road with some of the, the massive artists. And uh, I was really quite shocked that I thought, oh, no, they don't get paid anything. The record company actually pay the other band to say, right, we want one of our up-and-coming bands to do that European tour. And by virtue of doing that tour, they would get seen by thousands of people and, right, you know, yeah. Some paid promo. So, yeah. yeah. That's right. Whereas, interestingly, back in in uh, in Australia in those days, I mean, look, we didn't do heaps of international supports, but the one we the ones we did, we got paid. It wasn't a lot, but it was right. You know, right. It was something. Yep. And did you, you know, so? Um, did you record with that band? With which band? Uh, with your band, um, Fat Time? Fat Time. Yeah. Look, not officially. No, we never okay. made a CD. We got lots of uh, great demos, uh, like really good quality recordings, but we never did a we never did a, an album. We were we were very close to being signed on a number of occasions. Mm. Um, a lot of the the record company, um, you know, uh, people in those days. Um, were aware of us and really liked us, but we weren't, um, we just, they couldn't pigeonhole us. We're a bit different and we definitely weren't Oz Rock. Um, I remember Glenn Wheatley was a massive fan of our band. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we did some TV shows with, with um, you know, um, when Farnham was on, on, the, um, on the show before, you know the um, that big album came out. Yeah. <clears throat> you know when he was sort of, I guess in his twilight in, in in that period, like he was a a sort of uh, pop idol in the seventies, and yep. then he had a period of about ten years where he was doing the RSL circuit to virtually no one. You know, like he was known, he was yep. well known, but it was a sort of like, you know, his profile wasn't that huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly, obviously. You know, they had that album. Uh, he had that album, and it was just like, wow. Um, Whispering Jack, yeah, that's Whispering Jack. Yeah, that's it. yeah. And didn't um, um, didn't didn't Glenn Wheatley mortgage his house to pay for that album? It wouldn't surprise me. Right, I might look that up and see if my facts are mm. right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure, but look, he was he was a fan. Uh, I remember he actually rang me up like when Farnham got huge, he actually rang me up and said, oh, would you, you know, I'd like to use you guys, um, you know, would you like to join John Farnham's band, like my horn section, Great. you know, from my band, which was incredibly flattering. But I just said without even flinching, I said, oh, no, I'm not really interested because I had a successful band, even though I wasn't as successful as, you know, John Farnham. Like it was, yep. I was running a band that was doing 300 shows a year Yep. Um, and it was kind of my baby, and it just I, it, it didn't even cross my mind that it would be a good career move to 
to sort of quit my own band to join Farnham. Right, gotcha. Yeah, so anyway. When did you decide to leave Sydney for the UK? Um, Around September 1987. Okay, why is that? Well, Fat Time kind of, you know, reached its sell-by date and, you know, we started to get a bit frustrated. We were touring a lot. Uh, We all still got on really well, but we sort of, we got to a to a point, I think, where unless we got signed and got a deal and got up the next level, all we were going to do is what we were doing. And look, that was great. Like we were, we were, we had a good fan base and we're a well-known band, and we played 250, 300 gigs a year. You know, it was five or six nights a week, pretty much year in year out. Yep. And it's hard to sustain that when you don't when you're sort of thinking, well, we need that record, we need that record deal so we can get on to the next level. Mm-hmm. So we didn't. that didn't happen. And that's okay. I don't have any regrets about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was that time when I knew that the band was going to fold that um, I just thought, all right, what am I going to do? And uh, I was extremely busy, like, you know, Post fat time, um, there was never any shortage of work. Like I was just freelancing, playing in a lot of bands, but I just something just I don't know something made me go. Well, okay, I want to go now to London where I lived as a seventeen-year-old and explore London as a musician, mm-hmm. and um, and that's what I did. Most of my friends and colleagues thought I was completely crazy because there was no reason to leave you know like it was a the 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 scene in sydney in those days was just unbelievable you know yeah it was there's so many opportunities so many of the big bands had horns had a horn section or saxophone um you know and there was no reason to leave but i'd be look i've always i guess i've always taken risks and you know i took a risk i guess even trying to, you know, be a professional musician starting quite late. I took a risk moving an eight-piece band to Sydney in 1984. Um, and, you know, it, it, I just thought, well, okay, let's see what happens. What's the worst What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. You know? Did you have, um, any, did you have anything lined up when you got there or you just like? No, just, no. didn't right. know anyone. Right. No. Right. No. So what did you do? No. What was the first thing you did? So a friend of ours who was a big fan of our of our band Fat Time insisted that um, we looked up this uh, lovely woman called Steph who spent some time in Sydney and was and and had sort of we'd met and she'd hung out with us a bit but I didn't really know her that well and I was travelling with a great friend of mine who was actually the trumpet player in um, in Fat Time so. You know, I did have a friend with me, so I did, you know, I had a, a, a close mate, um, you know, and we were both kind of pumped to see, see what, you know, we could learn or whatever. You know, we had a year, a year's ticket. The worst scenario, I guess, was we'd just have a year overseas and see yep. what happened. Yep. So... On the assistance of this friend, we we arrived in in London, 
And uh, at some ungodly hour, we waited till about nine o'clock and we were at Victoria Station and we rang her, this woman called Steph, and she already knew that we were going to be there because our mutual friend had tipped her off and she said, oh, you've got to come and stay and, you know, um, showed us the, you know, told us the directions and how to get there and she put us up for a couple of weeks and gave us an incredible sort of introduction to London. Great. You know, um, so I'm always sort of indebted to her for for her generosity back then because it was quite, like I remember getting on that plane and just going, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah. Uh, you know, me, me and my mate is also called Jason, great trumpet player. Um, we sat in silence for about three hours mm. um, on that flight. We had a stopover in Thailand for, for a week and we just sat there and, I remember looking at him just going, man, what, what are we doing? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but, uh, we kind of got into it. You yeah. Know? So was that, you say, once you got there and start getting into it, was that via sort of jam nights and just turning up to gigs and introducing yourself, that, that kind of thing? Yeah, look, it happened very slowly for me. Um, Jason, the trumpet, player friend of mine he got um there was a great um girl group in uh the 80s called the fabulous singlets that used to work um in sydney mm. and we'd both done some freelance work for those guys and they were actually living in london and trying to get work and they landed a um they had a show that, that they got a residency at one of the theaters on um shaftesbury avenue in the west end um which was like a six-month contract or something. And uh, the trumpet player that they had then had decided to go back to Australia because he was sick of sort of waiting around, you know, waiting for something to happen. So um, Jason slotted straight in within about a month of us being there to do, you know, eight nights a week at the Duke of York Theatre in in the West End. Mm. Um, but they had, this, they had a sax player, great sax player called Dave Glide, who uh, he'd be great for your podcast. Okay. Dave Glide, he toured with the Beatles in the 60s in Australia with a, a band called Sound Incorporated. And Dave's uh, still playing. Uh, he plays every Sunday night at um, Low 301, a club in Surrey Hills. Mm-hmm. And he's probably in his mid-70s now, but he still plays great. And he was actually the incumbent saxophone player in in the fabulous singlets wow. at that point. So I sort of missed out on, you know, getting that gig. So, man, I, it took me, I reckon, at least six months until I even got a gig right. in London. Like it was a really slow burn. I um, I went out to gigs pretty much every night. I, I didn't do jam sessions. I've never been a jammer. Like I've never okay. got into that. Yep. Um but I met a lot of people and um, ran out of money very quickly because the exchange rate was so bad in those days and London was so expensive uh, compared to Sydney back in the late 80s. It was just unbelievable. So whilst I had, I think I had $10,000 or something, which at that time seemed like an incredible amount of money to to go away with, but I think I'd spent it all in three months, you know, right, sorry. <laughs> so I had to get, 
I had to, you know, get a few menial jobs here and there, laboring and driving trucks and all sorts of weird shit um, that was, you know, a bit hard to to have to do that, having had such a successful career so far in Australia. You know what I mean? Yep. So, so it took took quite a while. Um, me, and, me and the other Jason sort of advertised ourselves as a horn section in various publications and we started getting a few calls from some some bands and we went up to the um edinburgh festival um i i i went up to the edinburgh festival i think in that first year 1988 and met a whole lot of people and got asked to was asked to join a band and you know it started to sort of get work on a, a local level around london uh probably towards you know the middle and latter part of 1988. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just sort of built from there, really. Mm. But it was it was nothing like a kind of, oh, great, man, yeah, I'll get you some gigs, you know, because right. <laughs> once I became established over there, a lot of, you know, people that um, I knew from Sydney or Australia sort of came to London and, of course, I was their point of contact. And were you going? Uh, oh no, I don't, I don't know what. Don't, I don't know of any yeah. gigs, man. Hey, I worked my ass off. Tough it. You got to tough it out like I did, man. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Um, and uh, I just, I well, I know. I tell you what, I did think at the time. I just remember thinking, Jesus, I wish I had, I wish I had something like this when I got there. Yeah, right. Because it was, it was tough, man. Like it was going from. I mean, Sydney, the jump from Adelaide to Sydney in terms of the level of players, you know, Sydney's always, I mean, sorry, Adelaide's always produced some incredibly gifted players, but there's just far fewer of them. So then you go to this melting pot that is Sydney, which is just full of motherfuckers everywhere, Mm. you know, and then you sort of go, wow, I've got to raise my game. And I was pretty confident, man, when I left at, uh, left Sydney, and then I went down to went to London. Man, I just got knocked down again. You know? right. It's just sort of like, ah, okay. So it, it was like starting again, really. Right. So you, when you mm. say knocked down, do you mean because it was difficult to get into the scene? But I mean, I'm sure once you got in there, um, you kind of would have earned earned your keep. But yeah, it, yeah. What I mean, knocked down. I just mean in terms of like seeing. The, the sheer number of unbelievable players. Right, okay. You know, uh, the unique thing about British musicians, certainly um, compared to, say, American, is that nobody knows who they are. Like outside of Australia, nobody knows That's who right. these guys are. You know, everybody, you know, talks about these young up-and-coming American guys and, of course, all of the established American uh, musicians. Um, but... Not many people kind of are aware of some of the incredible local musicians in in London. So, yep. you know, I was going out every night and watching bands, just sort of going, "Wow, <laughs> right. I've got a bit of work to do here." Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it, but again, look, don't, things like that. Uh, you grow as a musician, um, you know. Otherwise, you're just going to have to kind of do something else yeah, basically that's it eh? <laughs> you know? that's it yeah that's it i mean yeah going through something like that um would hold you in great stead i i reckon 
for going through what you're kind of going through now. <laughs> Very resilient. Yeah, resilience. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's right. And I think, look, I think a lot of musicians are. I think that's one of our, um, you know, great qualities because we're used to working in an industry that is, um, you know, full of pitfalls and ups and downs and, um, you know, strange politics, um, backstabbing, all sorts of stuff. And and you get hardened to, you know, being quite, you know, um, what's the word for it? Um, well, resilient, to, to use that word again, just to be, you know, like I've, I've, I'm sure I'm handling this current situation a lot better than some people that have a nine-to-five job whose industry has been destroyed. Yeah who have never known anything other than having a job and getting their paycheck once a fortnight, you right, know. Right. Um, whereas, you know, I've had periods in my life where I'm, you know, in the back seat of my car trying to find loose change under the back seat so I can go and buy a loaf of bread, mm. you know. Yep. Um, and fortunately I haven't had too many periods in my life like that. But, you know, like you you tough it out. You, you become sort of wise with your money and, um, you know, I think uh, it it's, keeps you in good stead to weather the storm in in sort of crises like this. Mm. Victor Rounds calls musicians cockroaches for the simple fact that whatever goes down, they're always going to come out. They're always yeah, going to come it. out. You, there could be a nuclear explosion. Cockroaches are going to come out. You know, <laughs> they're yeah, yeah. always no, going to. Right. The resilience thing. They're always going to come back. Great, great, yeah. great survivors. Yeah, Vic's a good friend of mine. I've mm-hmm. got a huge amount of respect for Victor. So yeah, very wise words. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, you ended up doing okay over there. Um, based on some of the people that you ended up playing with. Um, and yeah, yeah. So Clapton, Sting, Mick Hucknall, BB King, Steve Winwood. Um. All Saints, Bonnie Tyler, Van Morrison, Jules Holland. I mean, how did some of that stuff come about? Um, we did you get into that session scene, first call type thing, or um... Um, look, definitely, definitely not first call. Okay. Um, I, I look, I get, I got lucky, basically. Okay. Uh, I think, look, to a certain extent, you make your own luck, mm-hmm. um, but. Um, a lot of those artists I played with when I was working with Jules Holland, like I got to know the horn players in the Jules Holland band um, when he started his, um, what he calls his rhythm and blues orchestra, which he started in the early nineties. And um, I got to know the horn players and, you know, occasionally the sax player would ring up and say, look, I've got a gig coming up with Jules. I can't do it. Can you cover me? And so I started doing some depths um, in Jules's band, and I'm, I was already working with some other artists and doing some tours um, into you know to Europe and Italy and France and Amsterdam and um, kind of all over the place with a with a blues guitarist that was quite big um, in those days. Like no, nobody that nobody's ever heard of over here, but sure. he was quite big on that kind of European blues circuit. Yep. So anyway, I, I was sort of. By the early 90s, I guess I was already out there doing stuff, playing in a few bands, making a living. Started doing some um, debt work 
in Jules Holland's band. Um, and then um, the full-time gig came up, excuse me, with um, <clears throat> with Jules's band. So he rang me up and asked me if I wanted to join his band, um, you know, as the full-time sax player, which, of course, was an amazing um, opportunity. So uh, some of those artists you mentioned I got to play with while I was in Jules's band because we did cool. albums with those guys. We did TV shows. We yeah, did right. uh, special gigs like gigs at the Albert Hall and like big outdoor gigs at, in Kew Gardens and stuff like that where we would have a, a special guest. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like once you're in a band of – fairly big profile like that, then other stuff starts coming along. And I'd already been doing some sessions. Um, I'd met some people that wrote um, TV music, incidental music and, you know, sort of theme tunes for, for TV. So I was already doing some uh, session work. Some I got a couple of um, sessions early on with some of the A-listers, the people like Derek Watkins and, Steve Sidwell and some unbelievable players. Like I was, I was really, really kind of uh, petrified being in a studio with those guys because mm. I mean they're doing like three sessions a day, you know. <laughs> like right. suddenly I get a call from a fixer saying, "Oh yeah, we've got a session tomorrow for some, you know, chocolate bar ad or something," you know. And I'd be suddenly in the studio with all of these A-listers, feeling a little bit out of place. Um, but, you know, I, you just kind of go, well, okay, well, I'm not going to say no to that. Um, and, you know, you become part of the scene and then people that you get to know, you know, I met this um, this quite eccentric sax player who I can't even remember his name, but he asked me to, he knew all the guys in the Madness, in Madness, the band Madness. So, you know, the next thing I know I'm being asked to do an album with, with Madness and... <laughs> You know, kind of crazy shit like that that I would have never dreamed of, of doing in, in my life. You know, when I was a kind of 15-year-old sitting around at my mate's place, you know, in Adelaide, smoking weed and listening to Eric Clapton, it would, never would have occurred to me in those days that one day I was going to be in a rehearsal room with him and then doing a gig, you know. So, <laughs> yep. um you know, there were there were a lot of uh, pinch me kind of moments. Um, you know, working with big artists like that, mm. um, and then you get you know like I suppose it's a, it, you know when you're you know doing something like that, then somebody hears you and goes, oh well, I heard that you just did you know the Madness album, so can you play on this album? And yeah, yeah, you know, it's sort of that knock, word of knock mouth on effect type thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So look, I'm. Yeah, I had some incredible experiences over there. And you, know? you, you, um, you got to play on one of the, the greatest rom coms of all time, four weddings and a funeral. I did. <laughs> right. How did that go down? And and and, and where, where are you in the movie for for anybody that's sitting there in in um ISO, about to watch four weddings and a funeral? If you want to listen to want to listen to Jason play. <laughs> um there's a um okay so the way that came about which is um it's worth kind of just filling you in because sure. 
Um, I was in a in a great band called Ronnie and the Rex that did the um, you know the sort of comedy circuit. Actually, there was a circuit a scene in uh, in London where um, you know there was essentially the comedy circuit, but they did involve music. And I was in this band called Ronnie and the Rex, and the, the singer in that band was also a comic. Uh, so often we'd do a gig where there'd be two or three co- comedians. And then it'd be the band and, you know, people would they'd clear the chairs and people would dance and so forth. So it was it was a different scene, but it was really cool. And our bass player, uh, he knew Richard Curtis. And none of us in the band had ever heard of Richard Curtis. And, and I remember him saying we were playing at this place called Dingwalls in Camden. And he said, oh, there's this guy, uh, this director I know that's going to come and speak to us about possibly doing a movie Um and, and we're all kind of going, oh, yeah, like we weren't that excited because we'd never heard of Richard Curtis and we didn't know anything about it. And um, the next thing we know, there's this guy in the dressing room sort of going, yeah, I'm looking for a band. It's a it's a little film. You know, everything was little. <laughs> like There was no kind of like this is going to be bigger than Ben Hurd. Yeah. It's, it's just like really understated. And I remember talking to him um, after the gig at the bar saying, tell me a bit more about this movie and, you know, who, who's in it? And he sort of went, oh, you know, Andy McDowell and uh, Rowan Atkinson and and Hugh Grant. And, <laughs> and and I was kind of starting to go, ah, so it's just some little movie, right? Yeah. So, and actually Hugh Grant at that stage, it's another story. Hugh Grant at that stage was just a kind of B-list actor. I actually right. used to play cricket. I used to play cricket in a um, a team that was basically full of comedians and actors. Right. And um, and uh, he he often played in the team that we played against. Yep. And uh, you know he'd done you know some very minor sort of stuff at the time, but he wasn't a superstar by any means. So. Anyway, so we got asked to do this film. We're on this incredible set in this, you know, unbelievable kind of stately home in the middle of some forest somewhere. <laughs> um, and we were basically one of the bands uh, for one of the weddings because, as, as you know, it's four weddings and a funeral. Right. And we were – we ended up on the cutting room floor. Oh. Um, you didn't see us in the film, but we all got credited and we also tracked – um, the film. So we went into Lansdowne Road Studios, which was one of the big uh, studios where they did a lot of film tracking and we um, tracked not all of the soundtrack because some of it was already pre-recorded, but we did some of the incidental stuff and there was there was a scene where um, I can't remember which wedding, but there was a scene where two kids are playing kind of hand scissors and rock or something under a table. And there was some kind of drama going on and there, there was um, Smoke Gets In Your Eyes was um, playing and that's me on that. So right. there's that. Right. Um, but there was also other um, parts of the soundtrack that, that we played on as well. That's cool. So, so yeah, no, it was pretty cool. That's awesome. Um, so you came back to Sydney 2006. So... Uh, ha- what was the reason for that? Was things in in um, London starting to sort of um, dwindle down, or, or was it 
you feel like because the combination of a few home. things, Stevie. Mm. Uh, there was a number of things that came into play. I had a bit of a kind of health meltdown in the early two thousands, and I got a, a kind of really nasty virus. Quite topical at the moment, but um, it's like a glandular <laughs> fever right. type right, virus. Right. Yep, that just fucking destroyed me, man. Basically, mm. uh, and it, took, it it ended up kind of you know, um, manifesting in a kind of uh, chronic fatigue type, um, oh, you know, condition. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I had to stop playing and I lost a lot of my gigs um, and I just had to sort of, um, you know, build my career back up again because I just basically disappeared off the scene for, for quite some time. Uh, probably took me... Well, at least three years before I started to, to circulate again, and then it probably took me another year or two after that to start it to start sort of feeling confident about my ability again. And you know, I'm happy to say that I've made a full recovery, but it really took it out of me. And you know, when when you're sort of unable to work um, as much as you did, and you have to sort of start reinventing yourself, and the weather's cold and it, it, it all got a bit much, man, to be honest. And uh, I just kept thinking, wow, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to come out the other side. Mm. Um, and I started questioning whether I really wanted to keep living in London, you know. Right. Because right. it's, it, it's an intense city. Like Sydney's pretty intense, but we're, we're so lucky here with the, the way Sydney is, the, ge- the geography of Sydney with all of the beaches and the harbour and the space. Um, compared to London, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a huge difference. And it's, um, you know, for me then, re- reflecting back on that, I, I realised that I was probably just kind of going, well, what's the point of being here, you know, when I'm not feeling very good? <clears throat> and um, so we made a decision um that coincided with me actually feeling a lot better, like I was starting to come out the other side. Um, but we just thought, look, let's let's move back to Australia and just sort of see what it's like for a year or two. Mm-hmm. We don't, you know, we didn't sell up or anything. We just rented out our house in London and moved back here. And, you know, within very f- short period of time, I just remember thinking, yeah, this is this is where I want to bring up my kids. Right. You know? So, so you. Um- you ended up getting married over there. Yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, so I left, um, you know, I left in 1988 with a saxophone and a backpack and yep. I came back in, in 2006 with a wife and two kids. And, so. and, 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 a, and a London mortgage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but we bought early in London. So oh, we did sweet. Okay there. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 Very good. Yes. Uh, so yeah, so we got back here and, um, Never really look back. I mean, it's a, it's a hard adjustment, um, you know, going from such a massive city to a to a smaller city. But I've you know found enough to keep me amused here, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm it's fourteen years now. I can't believe it. You know, right? right. It's, uh, right. A lot of a lot of stuff's gone down in that period of time as yeah, well. That's right. So let's talk about coming home then. Um, had you got yourself back into playing at that stage? Oh yeah, 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 yep. yeah, 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 hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 100%. yeah yep. look, okay. so so I think it was about two thousand and one that I got sick, 
and I had to – I probably stopped gigging for about eight months. Um, <clears throat> and then I but, – but it took me a long time to get back into it. And, like, there, there's no way I could have done any touring or anything like that, you know. So even though I, you know, I managed to still do a bit of teaching and then I built my teaching back up and um, started gigging more. And I got – you know, by the time we left, I was feeling – probably about 60% and then the, you know, maybe 70 and then the, the remaining 30% sort of happened when I got back here, you know. So I was, um, you know, I was ready. I was ready to rock by the time we, we arrived back here. Mm. Had, had you, you been know? kind of uh, keeping an eye on Sydney at that stage? Keep- Look, I was and I was, um, I was actually very concerned <laughs> to be honest. Right. I really like, you know, I remember Googling sort of jazz gigs or something once mm-hmm. in Sydney and seeing about three venues <laughs> thinking, wow, this is going to be tricky, right. um, you know. Uh, but, look, you know, other things were happening and I got some teaching at the Australian Institute, in, Australian Institute of Music through my brother mm-hmm. um, who still teaches there. So I was, you know, started um working there sort of, you know, probably two days a week or something and, you know, doing gigs and then I started putting my own projects together and, um, you know, it's been – I've been pretty busy, man, for quite a while. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about – or we can talk a lot about it if you like. Hammerhead, that's your – Oh, good. Yeah. So that's your that's your main project? Um, yeah, well, yep. that's my that's an original band, original yeah. project. Yep, yep. So when did you start yep. that? Look, I reckon that was two thousand and ten. Mm-hmm. Um, I started that project uh, with a great friend of mine and a great drummer called Duncan Archibald, um, which was essentially to do a kind of Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers type sort of show. You know, playing some of those charts. Um, and I've always loved that music, the hard bop. You know, it was probably the music that inspired me the most to be a saxophone player. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we did our first gig at 505. Sadly, 505 is not around anymore. Yep. But um, Cam, Cameron Andy gave us our first, you know, opportunity and we played there sporadically and, uh, you know, built up the following and, um Started. I started sort of writing. I, I realised after about maybe three years that we should probably record an album and that I didn't want to just record an album doing, you know, Art Blakey tunes, you know. So yeah. I sort of wrote some music for that first album uh, and my brother, who was in the band at the time, wrote one. Uh, and then the rest of the tunes on on that album were were covers, um, and then sort of over, a, you know, probably the next four or five years, we started you know getting some festival gigs and did Wangaratta Jazz and Blues Festival and Threadbow and the Manly Jazz Festival and uh, Capital Jazz Festival down in Canberra and bands started to you know become reasonably well known. Um, we released our first album in 2014 and got, you know, a lot of airplay and some really good reviews. And then <clears throat> I just sort of started thinking, well, um, 
I, I you know, I started studying composition actually and uh, doing a master's um, and I just sort of thought I want to, I want to actually turn this band into an all original band, you know? So basically I just sort of put my head down and wrote, you know, a whole repertoire of music that we played live, um, you know, over a couple of year period. And then last year I thought the time was right to, to record it. And we, we recorded um, Turning Point, which was um, the second release, which, um, you know, the name, I basically called it Turning Point because it was definitely a sort of change in direction um, from the compositional point, from a compositional point of view, and also um, changed the lineup a bit as well to uh, suit the music that I was writing. So it was a kind of, you know, it's definitely a, a kind of crossroads sort of scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we got a lot, lot of great press for that album and got a whole bunch of gigs in September that I'm hoping we're yeah, going to be able yeah. to do. Fingers crossed. Got a, got a tour lined up. So, yeah, look, that's that, that, that band. I love that band. We're really lucky that we've been able to play at Lazy Bones. We've had a residency there now for five years, uh, once a month. Uh, so that's a, a, an amazing opportunity to just to be able to keep the band happening and have somewhere to play every, every month is great. And we've done, you know, lots of other gigs. Um, you know, we did the Sydney Con International Jazz Festival last year and we did Manly Jazz Festival again. We went up to Queensland and did a couple of gigs, did uh, something up in Cairns and then in Brisbane. Um and, uh, you know, I had a lot of high hopes for what we we're going to be able to do this year. And as I said, I've got quite a few dates in the book, including a trip to Melbourne, um, September, October. But I, I think it's probably unlikely that that's going to happen. Uh, but, yeah, that's sort of, I guess that's my muse at the moment, Hammerhead, yeah. you know. Yeah. Certainly one of them. Yeah. What's your, what's your writing process do you come up with a riff on a saxophone and then just sort of build from that or do you sit down at a piano or do you just have a melody in your head, put it down, write a song? How, how's your pro- um, what's your process? It sort of varies from song to song. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess I kind of labour over a lot of my music. Like it doesn't just happen immediately. Like I'm not, I'm definitely not a prolific composer like i i love writing i love the process uh but i don't write every day some people you know? are just, some people are just too good for their own good <laughs> at that kind of thing eh? <laughs> makes you sick well look i yeah that's right i <laughs> need on, to be really inspired though. i find yeah I, I i find listening the more listening i do the more inspired i get to write and I used to write, like I released an album, my first solo album of all my own original music in uh, 2008, <clears throat> which was uh, called As Above, So Below, which was um, a, a project that I started when I was sick back in London. Okay. One of the things I did then to sort of try and keep creative was to write. So um, I wrote a lot of music there. I recorded some of it. I brought lots of stuff here. I re-recorded stuff here. I went into studios here. But so that album was the culmination of about five years writing. 
And um, most of that I wrote on the, on the guitar. Um, but um, I don't really write at all on guitar anymore. So it's more piano um, and saxophone. Mm. But, like, I'm a, you know, I'm a self-taught piano player and guitarist. I just sort of get around the piano a little bit enough to accompany students and 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 basically compose. Mm-hmm. I, I can't, like, I'm not a, I can't sort of open up some piano music and play it, you know. Like, mm-hmm. I can play chords, but I can't read sort of piano music with two hands and stuff. Yep. Um, but the, the music that, uh, like, Hammerhead is, you know, piano, bass, drums. So the, the driving force in the rhythm section is piano. So I guess that's perhaps why most of the stuff I write these days is on piano. Mm-hmm. And then what I kind of do is I'll come up with something that I like on the piano and then I'll sort of develop melodies often with the saxophone um, and, you know, back to the piano, back to the saxophone and then put it together. Mm. But it's sort of every tune pops out in a different way. So it's quite a hard process to, to you know, to explain, mm. you know. No, that, that, uh, that answers my question. Thank you. Um, oh, cool. Cool. Who are your influences these days? Um, what, locally or internationally? Let's go international and then we can talk a bit. bit okay. Local. Well, look, um, I guess probably, um, you know, if I had to name my favourite composer, it would probably be Wayne Shorter, um, who was, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but yep. he was, um, yeah, um, obviously in Weather Report, but way before then he was a, uh, you know, he had his own quartet and quintet, and um, I, I love his approach to composition. Um, been extremely inspired by by his music over the years. Um, there's nobody um, sort of internationally at the moment that I'm listening to that where I get my inspiration as a composer. Like, there's plenty yep. of stuff I listen to, yep. but I couldn't sort of go like I. I love Snarky Puppy and I listen to a lot of their stuff for a while, but I don't really write like that, you know. Yep. Um, I, you know, there, there's stuff that I listen to that I guess is reasonably current that, that I love, but it doesn't inspire me to write, you know. Um, mm. Probably the biggest influence on my composition and certainly the, the, the most inspiring artist that I've heard in the last few years and really immersed myself in is uh, Barney McCall, who's you know, Australian, <clears throat> who um, <clears throat> he'd be great for the show as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Barney. Do you know I, Barney? I don't, I don't know. Barney is an absolute legend. He lived in New York for a long time, unbelievable composer and piano player. Um, so he's recorded about, I think, 12 or 13 albums under his own name now. Right. Uh, yeah, he's, he's unbelievably prolific and, and really adventurous. He takes a lot of risks. And I, and I guess in the last five years, if I had to name one person that was the most, you know, give, has given me my most inspiration as a composer and a musician, it would be him. Right. Um, uh, he spent a lot of years in New York and he's played with a lot of heavyweights um he's been back in melbourne now for quite a few years i think 
Mm. Um, but he's one um, that, that, you know, whenever I hear his music, it sort of inspires me. But again, I don't try and write like him. Yeah. But it's interesting how you hear really good crafted music and really interesting contemporary music, whatever kind of genre that can often be the spark for a composition that's completely different. Yeah. You know, it's, it's it's quite hard to explain. Like I've, I've never kind of gone, well, I want to sound like that band. Like I want to write a tune that sounds like that band. Like, you know, I've always sort of tried to just follow my heart when I'm writing and just sort of bring in as many kind of influences as possible. And then, you know, obviously uh, an album like Turning Point, of course it's it's still got a huge, um, its roots are hugely um, from uh, the, the hard bop jazz, you know, era that started in the late 50s. Um, but it's, I, you know, I think it's a much more contemporary kind of retelling of that music um, you know, brought in a lot of influences that are kind of much more current, I think, than than from back there. But, you know, in essence, that's what Hammerhead is. It's a sort of, you know, it's a contemporary hard bop kind of jazz band, I guess, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, so. Um, when did you get rid of your mullet? I saw some photos. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know that was coming, eh? Oh, man. <laughs> I was, I was looking, well, some, I looking, realized... looking at some photos, man, and uh, oh, I, I kind of saw a few of the fo- as it was starting to evolve over the years, man, and then it started man. getting a little bit out out of. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> when was it? When was I it? I kind of knew. You know what? Uh, sorry, I, I'll um, I'll find some some photos of the mullet and um. It's one of the best mullets I've ever seen. So I'll I'll, I'll put some photos in the uh, in the show notes somewhere so you can check okay, it out. Okay, yeah, All right, pretty cool. pretty mean. Um, look, I, I I mean, look, that was just a thing in those days. You're a bit younger than me, Stevie, so you probably never had a mullet. I did, I did. Oh, you did. I'll tell you what. Okay. I'll find your mullet photo, and I'll find my mullet photo, and and I'll put it in the show notes. There you go. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> when, when I when I yeah, first I when I first moved to Australia, oh man, I I had a kick ass mullet because my hair my hair naturally is very curly, so um I would it took me a while to get my mullet to kind of come down onto my shoulders, you know, um, yeah. Anyway, let's talk about yours. <laughs> Pretty shocking. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, look, I, I I receded from a fairly young age, so a lot of those photos that you would have seen, I was probably in my mid twenties. And I kind of think I knew at the time that when it got to a certain point, it would all come off. Yep. So, you know, I did the sort of pull it back and tie it back kind of routine, um, sort of late 80s. And then in 91, when I met my wife, um, I knew it was time. And I said, sweetheart. Um, <laughs> it's time. <laughs> you, might not like, you might not like this, but I want to shave my head. And, and what's more, you're going to do it. And she said, what do you mean you're going to do it? And I said, well, I'm not going to do it. Like, I can't shave my own head. So <laughs> we both got in the bath. <laughs> oh. And uh, that was it. <laughs> oh, the old mullet. Um, all right. Um, now, your music. You've got music for sale. You've got physical copies. You've got downloads for sale. And, you know, in these times, 
it's you know it, everybody knows that artists don't make a, a heck of a lot of money off streaming so what i'm trying to encourage people to do is buy physical copies or buy downloads because then that a lot of that money goes towards the artists and in this time it's very helpful so can we talk a little bit about um where your music where we where people can get your music from and i'll also link that in the show notes of the episode yeah look that's that's very kind of you stevie because it is important like i you know so many people especially the younger generation just assume that they you know you, you're going to give your music away and it actually it costs them I mean, apart from the amount of time it takes to produce an album that it's quite expensive so the best thing somebody could do is buy one of my albums from my website basically because it means every cent goes to me so you can get hard copy or you can get a download for i think i've got five albums up there Mm -hmm. Uh, obviously the most recent one is turning point uh and you can get um i can't remember how much it is i think it's 15 bucks for hard copy and five dollars postage or it's 15 dollars for the whole album download and if you buy the hard copy you get the download for free so it's awesome you know yeah. it's 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 pretty good uh both my both hammerhead albums are up there my solo album uh as above so below which I produced uh, in 2008 or released and produced. Um, that's up there plus another one called um, Searching for a Cool Basement uh, and there might be another one up there. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, that's the best place to go, yeah, jasonbrewer.com. Jasonbrewer.com and that's Brewer, yep. Brewer is B-R-U-E-R and Jason, J-A-S-O-N. That's um, it. And, again, I'll link that in the show notes so we can check that out. Okay. Cool. Thank you very much. No worries. Um, so we knew you had some gigs coming up. Um, hopefully the ones from September and onwards still still come about. Um, what about next year? Do you, do you kind of think years ahead for your career? Look, I mean, to a certain extent you have to. In the jazz world, with a band like Hammerhead, um, some festivals that you want to get on the books, you know, uh, like yep. if you, to have a chance at some festivals, they book so far out, you yep. know. Yep. Um, now, about this time, like I was trying to, I, I had about seven dates in the book with Hammerhead, um, September, October, and I wanted to try and get another five. So I was hoping to do a 12-date tour um, around that time. Now, I haven't. I've just dropped the ball because I thought, well, I've spent so much energy doing that, getting the, the ones that are in place already. I, You know, the chances are venues, festivals aren't going to be booking anything until they know what's happening. Yeah. So to, to think further ahead than, than, you know, even this time next year is just pointless at the moment, you know. Like yeah. I, I, I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong, but I think – I, I, well, it wouldn't surprise me if, if our sector, like live music, is um, won't reappear until, um, you know, the, a vaccine has come about, which they, they're talking about a year's time. So it may be, you know, autumn to t- 2021 before Jesus. we're out there gigging again, man. I mean, it's a horrendous thought, but, you know, 
listen to what Gladys Berejiklian had to say this morning when she said social distancing will be a thing until a vaccine, vaccine is found. Yeah. I thought, well, you know, social distancing means you're not going to be able to go out to a club. Like they might relax it slightly where you can have a couple of people around for dinner, but are they going to let clubs open and bars and pubs? I don't, I don't know, man. I really hope I'm wrong, but um, it, it's impossible as an artist to look ahead at the moment. And that's mm. look. In some ways, it's it, it means I can relax. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, to <laughs> well, a point, though, I suppose. You know, which, which for me is a good thing because I'm not. I don't relax very easily. Like I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm. I well, I'm not uptight, but I I like to keep things moving, and I'm always sort of thinking of the next thing. Yep. You know, um, and at the moment, you just can't. You just have to go. Well, all right, let's tough this one out and see everybody on the other side. Mm. You know. Mm. So, yeah, very hard. Well, Jason Brewer, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, man. We did have this lined up for you to be here in my studio to do this, and we had this set a couple of months ago. Um, so it's a shame we're, shame we're doing it cyberspace. I um, hope you like my tinfoil hat, and I, I love the um, – the, yeah, the, the llama The gold the llama, llama suit you're wearing. Yeah, it's, you, you're looking great, man. <laughs> <laughs> you just imagine Light if you had that it. mullet, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I could grow it just for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I've got plenty of time to grow another mullet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm looking so, uh, looking forward to meeting you in person um, on the other side of this COVID thing. Um, yeah, likewise, man, likewise. Yeah, you look after yourself, man, and uh, you will be in touch. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. No worries, Jason. Okay. Right. See you, man. All the best, Cheers. man. Cheers. You too. See you. Bye.